Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. We are going to continue with uh, our study in the book of Philippians. And then next week, of course, Pastor Wilson will be back and he will be sharing with us a Christmas message. I'm so excited for him to come and uh, do that. Uh, but before we do, Philippians chapter 2, I want to ask you a question and I want you to be completely honest with me, okay? We've got to be honest, authentic, real. So you got to promise me that you'll answer this, okay? This question is, did you ever dream of being a star? Okay, think about that. Did you ever dream of being a star? Like maybe in the shower, you imagine your, yourself as the hottest new re uh, recording artist, and you're packed out the Staples Center, and uh, you're in the shower, and you're singing into your shampoo bottle, and you had that kind of fantasy of wanting to do that. Would you raise your hand? Yeah? Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. You're being honest, okay? Or maybe you dreamed of playing in the NBA, okay? Uh, somebody told me that that is the dream of all Asian men, and I'm sure it's the dream of all men, right, to play in the NBA. And so you won the world championship, and it's because of you, and you uh, became the MVP not only of that finals, but of the entire year, of the entire league. How many of you have dreamed that you were in the NBA? Would you raise your hand? Okay, yes, very good, very good, all right. Or maybe you fantasized about being nominated for an Academy Award, okay? And they announced that you won uh, the Oscar for Best Actor, Best Actress, and you have to give your acceptance speech, but boy, you've always wanted to be, you know, this star in movies, right? This star in motion pictures. Would you raise your hand? I just wanna know how many weird people are out here. Okay, good. <laughs> Good, not just, because I have all three of these things, okay? I remember when I was younger, I wanted to be the lead singer of a group called U2. I don't know if you've ever heard of them before, <laughs> U2, and uh, I didn't want anything bad to happen to Bono because I love Bono, right? Not that he died or anything, but maybe he lost his voice, or maybe, you know, he decided to go solo, and they came to me and they said, David Jung, would you take Bono's place? And I always imagined myself, you know, being on tour, the Joshua Tree World Tour, where I sing in all these venues. I had that kind of dream, right? Or I also, I also, um, I also dreamed of um, being a shooting guard for the Lakers when I was young. And I'm gonna share this with you. I'm gonna be a little bit vulnerable. But I gave myself a nickname, right? The Ninja, right? That I was, because I was stealthy and quick and pretty awesome. I'm not any of those things, but, you know, and I had like, uh, I had this song called Welcome to the Jungle because my last name is Jung, right? Welcome to the Jungle. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome, okay? Awesome. And anyway, I would play, and uh, back then, I would fantasize, because Michael J Jordan used to play then, that he would come up to me and he'd say, Dave, you are the best guard I've ever had to face, right? You have kept me to zero points. No one's ever done that to me before. And I always like fantasized about that. Or I really, there's a time I wanted to be an actor too. And I dreamed of being in the Academy Awards and I won the best actor, right? And so the winner is, and they, they say my name, David Jung, and here Tom Hanks and Robert Downey Jr. are clapping for me, you know? Yeah, he deserves to win, you know? And so I give my acceptance speech. Uh, you know, it's kind of silly, of course, right? You might say, oh, I'd never admit to that. That sounds so silly. Pretending to be a star sounds so ridiculous. But you know you've done it. And thank you so much for being honest and raising your hand, because we've all done it. We've all desired to, at some point in our lives, to be stars, right? To reach for stardom. And actually, can I share with you? This is a very biblical, very appropriate idea, 
This is very, very appropriate because God not only tells us to desire stardom, but God wants each of us to become superstars. You might say, well, that sounds a little Joel Osteen, right? But let me explain to you, okay? In Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, here's what the Word of God says. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. I want to tell you that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, exhorts us to be stars, to shine like stars in the world that we live. Well, you might say, well, if that's true, how do I become a star? Well, don't I need an agent? And maybe somebody will tell you, you know, living in Southern California, the first thing you need to do if you want to be a star is to get an agent. You need a Hollywood superstar, like a super agent, like Ari Emanuel, who will promote you and publicize you and get you on Jimmy Kimmel or get you on The Tonight Show or give you the choice parts in movies. You need that agent. Or you need a sports agent like Scott Boris, right, to show you the money like he did for, and this past week, if you guys are sports fanatics, Garrett Cole and uh, Anthony Rendon and Steven Strasburg, uh, the three major guys, they all got bank, right? They all got a lot of money because Scott Boris was their agent. So you might say, well, you need an agent. Or you, it, alongside uh, being an agent, you need great talent. You need something special that very, 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 very few people have. You need to be able to play like a LeBron James or sing like an Ariana Grande or dance like a Jennifer Lopez or act like a James McAvoy or you've got to have that gift of comedy like a Kevin Hart. You need that great talent or you can't be a superstar, right? Or you've heard if you don't have that, then at least have a killer instinct. You've got to be willing to do what others won't do. You've got to be willing to shock people and awe people and pander to people by being famous for becoming infamous, right? And there are so many celebrities that they base their celebrity on doing things that other people won't do. You've got to throw people under the bus. You've got to bury people in order to get ahead, a killer instinct. Or maybe you might say, well, in this world, if you want to be a superstar, you've got to act like you've got to fake it till you make it. You've got to have swagger. You have to have the ability to sell yourself and market yourself. There's got to be a flashiness about you. You've got to be able to, to own it and be arrogant and have that attraction because of the confidence that you have and that you exude, right? Because it's all about perception. And so invent yourself or reinvent yourself to match the spirit of the age. That's what the world would tell us. But God's way of stardom is totally different. And let me give it to you this way. Think about this. Why did God create stars in the first place? Have you ever thought, why did God make stars? Well, let me give you three things. And I think this is profound. Number one, it's to give God glory. The purpose of a star is to give God glory. Psalm 19 and verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. 
And so stars were meant to declare the glory of God, not our own, right? Or it was stars are created to give others direction. From our point of view, from man's point of view, stars are that thing that gives us direction. Navigators throughout history have set direction by the stars. A great example of this is found in the gospel, in the, excuse me, in the Christmas message in the gospel of Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, Magi, or wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. These wise men were astronomers, and so the star was their guide. And it says in verse 9, the star went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And in verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed because it led them to the child. You see, stars direct people. They guide them on the right path. And in this Christmas story, stars were meant to point others to Jesus and not to us. Another one is to provide light for the world. That's the most obvious one. Genesis 1.14, and God said, let there be lights in the sky or stars in the sky and let them give light to all the earth. Stars were meant to give light. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5.14. He says, you are the light of the world. Verse 16, let your light shine before others that they may see your goodness and glorify your father in heaven. You see, stars were meant to light up the world and it was meant and they were meant to shine bright so that all the world would see it. And so in our text, we are to do three of those. We are to do those three things. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told then where to shine. Verse 15, in a crooked and depraved generation. I'm going to do a lot of word studies here uh, this morning. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Crooked means bent out of shape. It's where we get the English word scoliosis from. The idea of being bent out of proper alignment. And the word perverse means severely twisted or distorted. It has the idea of being morally and willfully in the wrong. And so we are not to reach out for the world's idea of stardom that's so prevalent in our culture because it's bent away, it's deformed, it's distorted, it's willfully in the wrong. And there is a twisted darkness to the world that we live in. I don't have to tell you that. You can turn on the television and see another school shooting, another terrorist attack. You can see another crime being perpetrated. Whether we watch the local news or the national news, we see what's happening. This world is very dark. But it's in that very darkness that we're called to be shining stars, bright, brilliant luminaries in a crooked and perverse world. So the question you might have is, how can I shine like a superstar? I've always wanted to. That's something that sounds great. How do I do it? What do I need to do? Well, this morning, we're going to look at four star qualities that we must have in order to shine like stars in the world. It's a very simple message. The outline is four star qualities. And I'm going to use an acrostic, okay? An acrostic where S-T-A-R represents each of the qualities that we're going to look at. So the first one is, and if we can turn to that, is a sanctifying desire. S stands for sanctifying desire. Let's look in verse 12. It says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Have you ever read this passage and you had a thought and you're thinking, 
boy, this is weird. This doesn't sound like everything that I've been taught in church. And I can understand that when we read this, we get a misunderstanding that this is talking about working toward achieving salvation by good works, right? That we have to work toward it and being fearful of not making the cut. I've talked to people and they've used this as a proof text for, see, this is what it means. We have to work for it. We have to earn our salvation through good works and always be in fear and in dread of not being able to make it. Or I've heard people say, it's the idea of working at, keeping the salvation that you have right now and be fearful, right? Be, be in dread because you might lose it if you don't keep working at it, right? If you don't work at it, you might lose it. Well, you know, can I share with you that that's not what this passage is talking about. The word salvation is very important, okay? We think of, when we think of salvation, our born-again experience. When we trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and rightly so, that's a part of it. But did you know that the word salvation, when it's found in the Bible, in Old and New Testaments, right? When it's found in the Bible, is always seen as a process, it's always seen in a bigger picture continuum. So let me say it this way. Salvation is a continuum. And there are three process points that we have to understand in this continuum of salvation. If we don't, passages in scripture are not going to make sense to us because we have just this one process point that we're thinking about. Let me explain to you. Can, can we show the diagram really quick? Okay, in salvation, we see a continuum. And in these process points, we understand three aspects of salvation. Number one, we call it salvation past. And we use the term, I was saved, okay? And that's what we're talking about. And, and the theological term, and I put it right there, is the term justification, just so we can clarify salvation past, that point. Salvation past is meaning I was saved when we were born into God's family. Everyone who's trusted in Christ, and you guys know this, we have a spiritual birthday. When we came into the family of God, right? We were born into his family. But not only that, there's another salvation. It's salvation present in that continuum. And it's the idea, I am being saved. And it has the idea, it has the word sanctification. It's a really important word attached to it. So that not only were we born into God's family, but now that we're born, we need to grow in that family. We need to mature in that family. We need to look more and more like Jesus Christ. We call that sanctification. That's salvation present, what we're in now, if we've trusted in Jesus Christ. But there is a salvation future. We call that glorification. It's this idea, I will be saved. I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved one day, fully and finally. That's the idea that will be perfected in God's family, that as we're born in the family of God, as we're growing and maturing, there will come a time when God will call us home to be with him where he will perfect us and we'll lose this uh, fallenness and we'll lose this stuff and God will perfect us and, and glorify us in heaven. You see, salvation past, salvation present, salvation future, it's all important for us to understand. Then verses like, now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed, makes sense. Right now is our glorification going to happen, right, when we first were justified. That's the idea. And so let's look at it this way. Continue to work out your own sanctification 
with fear and trembling. The passage is referring to sanctification. It's this idea that we need to continue to mature and to grow to be more like Jesus. So the word work out is very significant. It's a word used in the first century of a miner working in a mine, okay? To work, and this is such a perfect picture where a miner's job is to dig out the treasure, the gold, the diamonds that's already inside of it. So notice the word is not working for your salvation or working to your salvation or towards your salvation. Working and achieving, working and achieving or keeping salvation, that's not what it's talking about. As a matter of fact, that's not a biblical concept. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We know that that's true. It's by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. So verse 12 is saying, work out what you already have. And we know this because in verse 13, we see the context. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God has already worked in that gift of grace. God has already given you that gift. Your job is to mine it out, to dig out the treasures that are inside. Your job is to grow and mature in, in the spiritual riches that Jesus Christ has put inside of you. Isn't that beautiful? Can I get an amen? amen. But you might say, well, what's this fear and trembling then, right? I don't understand. If that's the case, then why am I supposed to be fearful and tremble? Now, this is important. This was a figure of speech used in the ancient world. And we know figure of speeches, uh, even in our world, right? In our culture. This was a figure of speech used for serious attention and sober attention, okay? It's the idea, because we see it because Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, that word fear and trembling when he talks about his calling as a pastor, when he talks about his apostleship and uh, the, the, what was entrusted to him with the gospel. He's not dreading the gospel. He's not fearful uh, in that way of the gospel. No, he takes it with serious attention and consideration. It's so important. It's so valuable. It's so great that it should be handled seriously. It's the opposite of carelessness and flippant or cavalier disregard. Let me give you an example. Um, I always use my daughter. And by the way, uh, we, had our family, um, we had our family Christmas party, and many of you went up to my daughter and shared, oh, you know, your dad, I love when he uses you in, in, in all his illustrations. And she, thank you very much by doing that, by the way. So she comes up to me, she goes, dad, don't do that anymore. I hate that. Don't use me in all these, and because everybody knows about me. And I said, oh, honey, I said, I'm going to still do it <laughs> because, because I won't have a sermon if I don't, right? I, I still need to use, so I'm going to use her. As, she's not here, so it doesn't matter, okay? So when Alexis was born, uh, my wife had a C-section, and I got a chance to see the whole birth, and it was a very almost traumatizing experience because, you know, I saw her guts and everything. She's here right now. I saw, I saw all that. And then they pulled out this purple, hairy alien, and they pulled her out of my, um, my wife's body, and I looked at her, and it just really surprised me because I didn't, that's not what I expected to see, right? 
And they wrapped her and they took her down to, you know, that area that they allow the, the fathers to come to. And I remember when they gave her, or it was a Filipino nurse, and she, she, she kind of presented. And I remember just looking and just staring at them because of purple, hairy. It was just that whole experience that I saw up there, you know. I was like, oh, you know. And I remember just feeling that way. And I remember she looked at me and she goes, Daddy, baby's not for looking, baby is for holding, right? And so she gave, she goes, love that baby. And I remember the first time just holding Alexis in my arms. And of course, Wilson had that joy, of course, and Nina, they have the joy of Levi and everything. But I just remembered that. And I remember holding her. She was so valuable, so important, so special that I looked at her and I said, I'm going to commit my life to her. Man, that's who I want to be. I want to commit my life to her. That's the idea of fear and trembling. It's do we have that kind of desire towards sanctification? It's precious, it's valuable, it's special, the riches that God has given you, and it must be handled seriously. It must be handled where I say, I commit to this holy life. I commit to living victoriously. I commit to look like Jesus. You see, the desire of sanctification has to be handled not flippantly or cavalierly, but it has to be handled with serious desire. Who's the greatest baseball player uh, today? Well, I'm a Dodger fan, so I would say Cody Bellinger is the greatest by far. He's actually this year's MVP of the National League, so I love him, okay? And because I'm a Dodger fan, I believe he's, he's a tremendous hitter. He's the home run king, okay? If I were to speak to him during spring training and I were to ask him, hey, Cody, are you going to hit 1,000 this year? Right? That means that every time you come to the plate, he's the home run king, every time you come to the plate, you're going to get a hit. You know what he would tell me? No way. I'm not going to hit 1,000. You know, I'm going to come up 600 plus times in that season. I'm not going to be able to hit the ball all that 600 plus times. There's no way no one can hit 1,000. But if I were to ask him, do you desire to hit 1,000? He would say, of course. I'm intending to get a hit every time I go up to the plate. And if I were to be dumb and ask him, well, then when are you going to strike out? You know what he would tell me? I don't know, but it's not going to be by my choice. Because every time I go up there, I desire to get a hit. You see, this is what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling every day. We come to the plate ready to play ball. And we're seriously focused on our sanctification. We're willing to put blood, sweat, and tears into winning. But you know, spiritually speaking, many of us, we come to the plate not ready to work that out. We come careless or cavalier or apathetic or discouraged or defeated. And when the fastball of lust comes, we think, oh, I, I, I wasn't going to hit that. There's no way. That's, that's my problem. You know, I'm going to wait till I get to heaven and God's going to take care of that. But, I, you know, there's nothing I can do right now, right? Strike one. Or when the curveball of trials come, oh, man, I, I can't run the race like this. I can't do this. This is too hard. This is, and so we strike out again, strike two, or the slider of doubts, right? And you say, ah, oh, I'm going to give up. I don't know what to believe. I'm just going to lay down. I'm going to roll over. No batter would succeed in Major League Baseball with an outlook like that. But that's how many of us, we, <clears throat> we attach our sanctification. We do it in a way that we're not ready. We don't have that desire. When we go up to the plate in our sanctification, we should say, I'm going out there to hit the ball. Sometimes I'm going to strike out, but a lot of times I'm going to get a hit. 
And many times, I'm going to get a home run. You see, that's the sanctifying desire that we need to shine bright in this dark world. The second point is, if we can look at it, is a thankful heart. Verse 14, do everything without complaining or arguing. I think these words are very interesting. The word complaining means grumbling or murmuring. These are onomatopoeia words, okay? These are words that sound like what, what they're saying. Because the idea of murmuring or grumbling are always expressed in low, muttering tones. You know what I'm talking about? When you grumble, it's like, you know? It's expressing bitterness in, or murmuring, you know? That's what it's talking about. It's this idea of bitter complaining. A Psalm 106.25, this is a perfect picture. It says they grumbled in their tents. That's the picture of complaining. Bitterly expressing in private, where you never take it to the appropriate person, or you never handle it the appropriate way, you just express it in your tents to all the other people that will listen. And all of you together, that's the idea. And it leads to the next one, arguing. Right? Not only do you bitterly uh, share it with each other, but it comes out to full-blown argument. It means bitter challenging. And it's destructive. It's not constructive. It's destructive dialogue expressed in rebellion or dissension or division. Why is this so serious to God? Why does he tell us, do everything without complaining or arguing? It's because these things are contagious. You see, we never... <clears throat> Never do we see this combined to an individual. Instead, in the Bible, we see it spreads to a community. And here it devastates the whole community of God. A great example of that is the children of Israel in Egypt in the Old Testament. Israel was punished time and time again because of complaining and arguing in their desert wanderings, right? God was using that time of 40 years in the desert to discipline and to train and to build them up for their final entrance into Canaan. But during that time of wandering in the desert, right? During that time, he always provided for them. He gave them manna from heaven. You know what manna means? What is it? What is it? It would just fall from heaven and you could eat it and say, what's this? It's awesome. It keeps me nourished. Or the idea when they wanted meat that God would send quail to them. And quail by, by, you know, the thousands so that they'd be able to eat. Or when they got thirsty, they were given water out of a rock because there was nothing else. So God would just allow water to flow out of a rock. Or that God would lead them uh, by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You see, God always provided what was necessary for them to thrive in the desert. But here's the point. Israel saw none of that. They didn't see any of that. Rather, they blamed Moses, and really it was God, for bringing them, into the desert, bringing them out of Egypt into the desert. They complained and murmured and griped and, uh, and did all these things. And because of that, God punished them for that contagion of, uh, uh, of complaining and arguing because it brought darkness and not light. 1 Corinthians 10 says it this way in verse 10. Do not grumble as some of them did. Talking about those, the Israelites. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. 
They're an example for us. Now, knowing that, let's go back to our passage. What does it mean to do everything without complaining and arguing? What does this everything mean? Well, in the context, it's talking about our sanctification. You see, in sanctification, God will send trials. He sends storms and fires and giants. And he's going to use the desert to train us. He uses the desert. We talked about this uh, last week. Spiritual surgery to cut out those uh, cancerous tumors that we might have. Right? Or he uses serious hardships to build up spiritual muscles. Or he uses sobering challenges to stretch our faith to move forward. James says it this way in James chapter 1 beginning in verse 2. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops something. It develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You see, God's purpose is to mature you, to complete you, to make you look more and more like Jesus Christ. So knowing that, Paul and James both echo the same sentiment. Our response should be to be thankful. I love that song, This is How I Fight My Battles. I fight it by being thankful, by praising the Lord, right? Identify what God is doing and be joyful. The manna that he's providing in the desert, the water out of a rock, unexpected places that he provides, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that directs you all throughout your wilderness wanderings. What are the blessings that God has given? Can you be thankful for them? What are the provisions that God is placing in your life? Can you be grateful for them? What's the muscles? Can you identify them? You see, an attitude of gratitude is what God is telling us is going to allow us to shine like superstars in the dark world that we see ourselves in. And it's so unique, isn't it? When we see thankfulness in a world like we live in today. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let's, Let's see another one. Authentic walk. Authentic walk. A is for authentic walk. Let's look in verse 15 so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and perverse generation. Let me give you three words really quick from this, uh, from this verse. Blameless. It means holy and righteous. It has the idea of authentic character, that there's no hidden closets of sin and evil. Pure means unadulterated and undefiled. There's nothing mixed into it. It's 100% genuine. And without fault means no stains, no spots, no blemishes. That you and your character are squeaky clean. That you can't dig up dirt on anything that you do. You see, those words are different, but the message is the same. That what God wants from his superstars is authenticity without hypocrisy. I've shared this with you many times in the book of Matthew. We've been studying it. The first century word for actor is the word hypocrite. Right? George Clooney, amazing hypocrite. Charlize Theron, beautiful hypocrite. All it means is actor. <clears throat> and in the first century, it was one who wore a mask. It was one who pretended to be something that they were not. Now, who did Jesus have the biggest problem with was when he was here on this earth? We've studied it again and again. It was the Pharisees. And it was because of their hypocrisy, because they wore a mask, They hid all their sins, all their issues deep down inside, and they pretended to be something different, right? Jesus said that they were whitewashed sepulchers, white and beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, full of dead man's bones. You know, uh, in high school, I played basketball, 
and I played for a Christian school called the Emmanuel Warriors, okay? And I love my time playing basketball. I love my coach who's home to be with the Lord. His name is Co uh, Coach Roy Parmalee, and he designed our jerseys. Our jerseys were Celtic colors, right? Green and white, but that's okay. I, I, I love wearing it. I wore the number 23. I don't know how I got that, because I didn't play like number 23, but I wore number 23, and uh, I loved it. But the front of the jersey, or the back of the jersey had my name, but the front of the jersey, instead of saying Warriors, he designed it where it said Christian, all right? And that's kind of weird, isn't it, right? He, 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 at a Christian school, he put Christian, or he designed it that way. And it would be weird when the announcers would say, okay, here come the Emmanuel Christians, okay? Instead of the warriors, we wanted to be known as something really tough. It would always be Christian, okay? And so I remember coming out that way. But he designed it that way for a purpose because uh, before a game, he would always say this. He'd say, fellas, remember everyone's watching you. And make sure the name on the back of your jersey is consistent with the name on the front of the jersey. He said that at every game. Make sure that the name on the back, Jung, right, is consistent or matches the name on the front, Christian. And so that's always what we went out to do. And we had great sportsmanship. We always pr uh, played, or at least we tried to always play consistently as Christians because of that testimony that we bore. What's the biggest criticism of Christians? It's that they're hypocrites. Whether, you know, whether it's legitimate or not, in many instances, uh, many times that's how we are. There are great inconsistencies. There are dark closets that end up getting opened. And the name of the back of the jersey doesn't match the name on the front. You see, Christians are most attractive to the world when they are genuine and authentic. That's when they shine the brightest. R, last one, says radical witness. R stands for radical witness. Let's look in verse 16. As you hold out the word of life. Now, the word hold out in the classical Greek was used uh, in giving something valuable, a valuable gift to someone else. And that's so appropriate for Christmas. You know, as I get older, I do still like getting gifts, don't get me wrong, but I love giving gifts to the people I love. And giving gifts to my family, knowing what exactly they want, and giving it to them and having them open it up, and just the joy in their faces, that actually, to me, is more, it gets me more excited than actually receiving a gift. Because, let's face it, I pretty much have everything that I want, okay? There's not too much more that, that's out there that I want. And it's so beautiful. But it's this idea of enthusiastically, because when we give gifts... Don't we give them enthusiasm? Well, some of us don't, right? Some of us, we're like, ah, I wish I could keep this gift. But I'm not talking about you guys. I'm talking about giving out gifts to the people you love. Isn't it rewarding? It's special. That's the idea. It's enthusiastically giving something, holding it out. And what are we to give as a gift? The word of life. And that's synonymous with the message of the gospel. We are to enthusiastically hold out that gift that's greater than any other gift. It's the message of Jesus. It's the message that we, too, can be children of God. I love that. You know, um, one of the books that has been of great influence in my life, it's, it's I believe, one of the, the most important books that I've ever read. It's called The Rise of Christianity. How many of you have read that book before? Did you read? Okay, nobody has. 
if you get a chance to, please read it, okay? It's a little bit academic, but if you can get past it being academic, it's, 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 it's extremely eye-opening. It's called The Rise of Christianity. It was written by a guy named Rodney Stark, who is not a Christian, okay? And The Rise of Christianity, the subtitle's really long. It's how the obscure marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in just a few centuries. Have you ever thought about how did Christianity rise to what it was, right? Well, Rodney Stark, who's not a Christian, he's a sociologist, wrote this from a purely sociological point of view. And this is what he said, and this is basically the heart of what he says. The way that it grew exponentially and miraculously was the radical nature of how people gave the gospel out. That's really the rise of Christianity. Of course, the Holy Spirit, everything. Well, he's not a Christian, so he doesn't believe in all that. He says sociologically, it was the radical nature of how people gave the gospel. And he gives examples like in Rome when there was that great plague in the city and people were dying. Everyone who was healthy would flee to the uh, countryside to get away from the cities because they didn't want to die. And so they would go, and many of them, they would leave their infirm loved ones, their mom or their dad or their relatives, and they would escape and flee and expect, well, they're just going to die. You know what Christians did? Christians decided, you know what? If I die, I die. I'm going to go in and I'm going to help those loved ones. They're not my loved ones. They've been abandoned. But I'm going to go and I'm going to nurse them and I'm going to help them. And Rodney Stark talks about the fact that because of immunity or whatever, some of them didn't die. Many of them didn't die. And because they were nursed back to health, these moms and dads and everybody got better. And so when they did return back, they were shocked. These sons and daughters were shocked to see that their parents, and I'm sure the parents were ticked off that they left, but they were shocked to see that their parents were nursed back to health by these Christians. And guess what they became? They became Christians, right? As a result of that, that radical gift of the gospel lived out. Or that Christians would go into the leper colonies where nobody wanted to be because leprosy was contagious and you would surely die a horrible death from it. Christians determined, I'm going to die. I'm going to sacrifice myself to go in and to make their lives better and to share the gospel. And lepers would come to Jesus Christ, right? Or abandoned babies. Back in the first century, if you didn't want a kid, if you had too many girls, you would throw the unneeded girls out in the street to die. Christians would collect them and they would start orphanages. And these weren't rich people by any means. The Christians back then, they were poor just like anybody else. But they would sacrifice in a radical fashion to bring these people. And guess what? These orphans would grow up. Guess what they become? They become Christians. You see, the radical nature of holding out this gift in service and in sacrifice. They enthusiastically gave the gift of the gospel through the radical sacrifice and service of, uh, of their lives. In short, what were they doing? They were letting their light shine. They were becoming superstars. And it turned the ancient world upside down. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. God's desire is that we become superstars, that we shine brighter and brighter in the darkness, that we'll do this by having a sanctifying desire, by having a thankful heart, by living an authentic walk, by holding a radical witness. And in verse 17 to 18, I know by way of time, I won't exposit this, but I just want to say it this way. Paul says, when you shine like superstars, this is basically the gist of what he's saying. 
He says, I know that my time with you wasn't spent in vain. I know that all the work that I put in, all my blood, uh, blood, sweat, and tears, it wasn't spent in vain. And you know, I can die a happy man. Because Paul was in prison, he was awaiting his verdict. He could very easily have been executed. So he knows he's in that position where he could die at any time. And he said, if you shine like stars, then I can die a happy man. And I can rejoice because you're shining. And in verse 18, this is what he says. And you can rejoice because you know I'm shining here in this prison. Isn't that beautiful? The joy of the Lord is that I can rejoice because you're shining, and you can rejoice because I'm shining. And there is a beautiful, beautiful motivation to make sure that we are all lights in this world. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, give us that joy, the joy of our salvation, and allow us once again to love you, and to follow hard after you. And God, I pray that Jesus and others in you would be the banner cry of our lives. Father, uh, we are now going into, uh, into um, communion, and uh, we know that uh, communion is a time when we can continue to worship and focus our eyes on you, our sanctification. And we pray that as we take the bread and we take the cup, that, Lord, we would um, proclaim your death, burial, and resurrection until you come back on this earth. Lord, give us desire to uh, share in that as we partake of uh, communion. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.